This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. As we approach the end of the month of March, get set for a trip now to the dark side on Theater of the Mind. program you're about to hear is from the series Dark Fantasy. Although it was a rather short series, the shows are excellent and some stories way ahead of their time. The following is a news promo that promoted the show, so let me quote. Ever since Lights Out went out several years ago, fans of The Fiendish have been clamoring for more good old goose-pimple horror drama on the air. Well, now they have it. One of the programs that currently freezes the airwaves with its chilling stories is Dark Fantasy, comparatively new to the networks. In the late hours of Friday nights, these shivery, shocking stories go out over NBC, straight from Oklahoma City, which you might not have thought of as headquarters for haunts. Station WKY is the home of the dark fantasy plays, and the writer is Scott Bishop, who lives in the midst of mystery and the supernatural, represented by the innumerable volumes of thriller fiction, fantasy lore, and all kinds of horror literature that fill his home and his office. Bishop has long contributed to network broadcasting and the magazines. He says, give the listener enough material to let his imagination go to work, and he'll supply his own goose pimples. <laughs> well, here is the tale entitled, I Am Your Brother. Dark fantasy. I am your brother. Remember about everything. You must not forget it. The first appearance of bleeding some days following operation is of the utmost significance to the surgeon. There will almost invariably be a recurrence unless measures are taken to prevent it, and it will ultimately prove fatal. The vessels most commonly affected are the lingual, the facial, and the internal maxillary arteries. Unless this offending vessel can be isolated. Mr. Briggs, it behooves me to pause in the middle of this lecture to remind you of one important thing. Apparently not important to you, but extremely important to me. I have been paid as high as $1,500 an hour for lecturing on the after-treatment of surgical patients. I lecture here for the college medical class free of charge. I at least expect the courtesy of attention. I do not expect my students to tabulate their meager bank accounts while I am making every effort to instill some portion of physical knowledge into their thick-covered craniums. I was making notes, Professor. Apparently. Mentally, you were tabulating your money in the bank. Gentlemen, I regret that the lecture this morning will not be continued. Dismissed. Julius, is the lecture over so soon? Stupidity. Nothing but stupidity. Stupidity, Julius? Trying to teach those idiots the secrets of surgery is like trying to drill the Alzonian theory into a two-year-old. <laughs> Sit down, Julius. You're tired. I'm not tired. I'm simply exasperated. What's come over you, Julius? You've suddenly become so, well, so cantankerous ever since the death of Stephen Hamblin. Oh, I know, Carl. I know. He was very close to you, wasn't he? Close. I wonder if anyone knew how close. I wonder if anyone knew. You've known him ever since he was a boy. Yes, ever since he was a mere child. 
I remember when he first came here to the university. He didn't impress me as all the others did. There was no eagerness about him to learn. He seemed to have no ambitions to learn. And yet his grades were the highest that have ever been made in the history of our institution. Yes, just so. It's a pity that he had to die. Perhaps. Perhaps. Julius, all of us naturally expected you to be quite shocked to hear Stephen Hamblin's passing. But you fooled us completely. But you didn't seem the least bit startled when we broke the news to you. No, you... Well, you seemed almost, uh, almost glad. Did I, Dr. Miller? Yes, Dr. Simek. Has the body been cremated? Yes, this morning. Were my directions carried out? To the letter, Julius. The brain of Stephen Hamblin was, re- was removed. I myself mixed the solution you gave me. I submerged the brain into the solution and removed the air from the container. Where is it now? In my laboratory. It's a perfect specimen. The best developed human brain I've ever seen, Doctor. Take me to it. Now? Yes, take me to it. But haven't you another lecture, Julius? Don't argue with me. Take me to your laboratory. Or must I go alone? Why, well, of course, Julius. Of course. This way. I have the second solution at the boiling point for you. Just as you ordered, Dr. Simek. Good, excellent. Here, the brain. Yes, just so, just so. Most excellent work, Carl, most excellent. I'm glad you're satisfied. Do you wish to add the solution now? It should be done, I believe. Stephen Hamblin's brain must be preserved. This is one sure way of doing it. I must admit, I don't know what your method is. Certainly, I've never heard of it before. I wouldn't think a solution like that would preserve anything. It is a preservant no one has ever known of before. Are you ready, Doctor? Yes, quite ready. Yeah. We can insert this glass funnel through the rubber stopper on the container. I'll do it, Doctor. There. Now. You may extinguish the Bunsen burner, Dr. Miller. You want the second solution just below the boiling point. Yes. Very well. Is there anything I can do for you now? No, nothing. Stand back now. I'm about to add the hot solution to the other. There. Perfect. Yes, perfect. Is it necessary to remove the air from the chamber again? No, not now. Not now. I'll replace the punctured rubber stopper with a new one. Yes, do that, Dr. Miller. Uh, just a moment. Dr. Simek. Yes, Dr. Miller? This... This brain... Look at it. I have looked at it, Carl. Julius, that brain, it's alive. Does that amaze you? Julius. It's a beautiful specimen, isn't it? Alive. It is actually alive. Oh, yes, indeed. It always has been. Julius, I'm an old man. I I don't much relish your, your tricks. This is no trick, Carl. I assure you. Why, that brain is displaying the normal reaction you've often witnessed in viewing the human brain by means of X-ray. Yes, but this brain has no cranium. And the body, no body attached to it. Yet it lives, Carl. It lives. Only Stephen Hamblin's brain could do that. Live after his death. It's a trick. The solution, it must be the solution. No, Carl. It is not the solution that causes the brain to live. I admit it could not live without the solution. Mere pickling would have destroyed it. But the solution will preserve the life, Carl. The life that has never left. Impossible. Utterly fantastic. No, my dear Dr. Miller, not at all. Not at all fantastic, nor impossible. But the brain cannot live outside the body. The human brain, no. But Stephen Hamlin's brain can. But, Doctor, Stephen was human. Was he? Wasn't he? No one knew Stephen Hamlin as well as I did, Carl. No one. Not even his parents. Oh, they knew he was different, yes. They knew he wasn't just an ordinary person. But they had no idea how truly extraordinary he actually was. I 
I can't believe a human brain existing after the body has been cremated. Perhaps, my good friend, if I were to tell you his story, you would see the reason why such a thing could happen. Yes, perhaps. Sit down, Carl, sit down. Look deeply into the mystery you see there before you. The living brain of dead and cremated Stephen Hamlin. It was a most extraordinary brain, Carl. Yes, most. To know the mystery behind it was to know Stephen Hamlin. I remember the first time I met him. <laughs> a little place in Kansas, a small town called Emporia. Stephen was born there 37 years ago. I was ten years old when I met him. He was nine. And yet he was crawling about from place to place on all fours, like a mere infant. He'd been examined by the best doctors in America, taken to New York, to the West Coast, everywhere for observation. And each examination brought the same verdict. Perfectly capable of walking, but apparently unable to do so. Probably because of some mental handicap. A good enough excuse. A good enough diagnosis. For the stupid. It may have been a mental handicap, yes. But if it's so, it was of Stephen Hamlin's own making. He had never spoken a word, uttered a single guttural sound in all those nine years. He'd never smiled. Never frowned, never cried. Nine long years crawling on hands and knees, never uttering a sound. And yet, his vocal cords were pronounced perfectly normal, completely developed. And yet he had never spoken. Never. That first day I met him, I was put in charge of him while I... Elders attended a ball game. It was the first day I really knew Stephen Hamlin. It was the first day anyone ever knew him. When we had been left alone, I went off to a corner of the room by myself. I turned my back to that crawling bulk of a lout there on the floor and chose a book to help while away the time until my uncle should return for me. And suddenly... After a brief passage of time, suddenly there was a hand upon my shoulder. I probably should have been startled. I knew Stephen and I were alone in the house. But I wasn't startled. Instead, I turned my head and looked slowly around behind me. Looked up into the wide, innocent, staring eyes of Stephen Hamblin. He was standing there beside my chair, gazing down on me. Yes, down, yes, standing. Stephen Hamblin was standing. For a full minute, our gazes met, confused. I was too startled, too amazed, too puzzled to speak. But after that long, burning minute, he spoke. You don't like me, do you, Julius? I was too bewildered to answer. Stephen Hamblin had not only completely astonished me by standing, walking, but he had actually spoken to me. And I knew he had never spoken a single word to a single living soul before in all his nine years upon this earth. Yes, his walking, his talking completely mystified me. And yet there was something else. Something else. Yes, something besides mere walking. Something apart. Something far superior to mere talking. And then when he spoke again, I knew. I knew what it was. I said, Julius, you don't like me, do you? He talked with the voice of an adult. 
I was more speechless now than I'd ever been before. Stephen Hamlin, not only completely overwhelming me by a sudden and unheralded display of an ability to walk, but also causing my hair to stand on end by actually addressing me in perfect mannish English with the voice of an adult. After what seemed a compilation of eon upon eon, I found my voice. I... I have never had occasion to like you, I said. Nor, he said, have you ever had an occasion to dislike me? I admitted that was true. And then I said, Why is it you never walked until now? Never talked? To which he replied, I had no occasion to walk because there was no place interesting to which my walking could take me. And as for talking, so far I've never found anything interesting to talk about, or anyone of enough interest to talk to. How long, I asked, have you been able to do both? I have had the ability to walk and to talk, he said, ever since the day I was born. After a while, the became acquainted. Long before the elders had returned joyously from watching their favorite ball club whitewash the visiting team, Stephen Hamblin and I were bosom pals. It was a friendship that was to exist until death did us part. After that, Stephen Hamblin stood upright on both legs, spoke like any other human, did I say human? Forgive me. The only difference was that his was a fully developed mind, a fully developed voice, but a highly underdeveloped anatomy. I remember one day when Stefan and I were playing together on the school ground. I remember I was practicing high jumping at the time. Stefan was watching me. And all of a sudden... He jumped to his feet from where he had been sitting and stood staring wide-eyed. Then quickly he raised both hands before his face as though to shut out an evil, horrible sight. Suddenly there was a noise in the air. The noise of wheels upon rails of steel, spinning, speeding, racing wheels. Clickety-clack, 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 screaming as they went. And at that very instant, Stefan covered his eyes with his hands as though to blot out some unspeakable terror. Terrifying, resounding crash. As though a million planetoids had collided in the stratosphere and come crashing down around us like pellets of falling hailstones. When I looked at Stefan, he had slumped to the ground. I rushed to him. My heart leaped within me. I raised Stefan into my arms as I threw myself down beside him. When he opened his eyes, he asked quietly, Was... Was anyone saved? Anyone? Saved? I frowned. Tell me, Stefan, what in the name of heaven happened? He was quiet for a moment. Then he pulled himself away from me. Arose to his feet. He looked about him momentarily, on all sides. And then he spoke. Still softly. There's been a terrible accident. A train has just left the rails and plunged headlong into a hundred-foot gorge. The next day, our newspaper headlines screamed the details of the most destructive and death-dealing train accident ever to happen in the city of Paris. Yes, in France. It had happened at the very moment Stefan had covered his face in terror. And we had heard that pounding, awesome crash. It was not until several years later when we both entered Oxford College that I saw Stephen Hamblin again. At first he avoided me. Tried to pretend he didn't know me. 
But when I finally managed to get in a word with him and remind him of our first meeting, he told me he was glad to see me again. But he was extremely cold, almost insultingly reserved. And the very few times I saw him after that first day for the next year was between classes. He never partook in student activities. He never strolled the campus or climbed the cliffs or swam in the lake or enjoyed soccer or cricket with the rest of us. He was never seen with the rest of us. There were constant whispers about him and his strange, weird actions. Many whispers, most of them ugly and vicious and vile. It was four long years before I talked to Stephen Hamlin again. Four years at Oxford. I heard those whispers about him all that time. I heard professors say he was the most amazing student of all times. Perfect grades in all subjects. A born doctor, a truly great scientist. A prospect for the world's greatest surgeon. And then, Stephen and I suddenly found ourselves to be classmates. Even then, I had difficulty in finding an opportunity to make speech with him. But after much effort, having exerted a great amount of patience, I finally cornered him. Oh, now look here, Hamlin, I want to talk to you. Yes, Dr. Semek? Oh, please call me Julius, Stefan. I uh, think I want to talk to you, Julius. Good, excellent, my dear fellow. Where shall we go? My room should be as good a place as any. Suppose we go there. All right, Stefan, that's perfectly right with me. So we went to his room. There were no books there, none. But there were a few sheets of composition paper and pen and ink. I picked up several of the closely written sheets. It was the most profound and complete and exquisitely worded treatise in diseases of the human brain I had ever read in all my life. I remarked to Stefan that it was odd that he could pen such a masterpiece and yet had no books whatsoever for reference. He didn't smile when he answered. He simply said, I don't use books, Julius, because I don't need books. What I write, what I recite in my classes, comes not from anything I have ever read, not from anything I have ever been taught or have studied, but from somewhere deep within. You mean you're fully aware of all these facts without having studied or read or heard about them? Yes. You see, there is nothing I don't know. To me, the theories of the scientists and the theologians and the professors and the doctors are merely nothing more than the alphabet is to you. I have no interest in them whatsoever, save that they are convenient at times to know. And most of those profound theories, profound to you, understand, most of them are so terribly false, so astonishingly wrong and untrue and unsound, that they fail to interest me in the least. Yes? Stephen Hamlin was the fount of all the world's most intellectual knowledge. Everything that all mankind had ever known, the secrets of science, of medicine, of astronomy, of surgery, and numbers and mechanics, and all the millions and millions of other subject matters, were all embedded there. There, deep in that superhuman, unbelievable brain of his. After our graduation from Oxford, after we came here to medical college to study surgery... Stefan and I grew closer and closer together. Never did he open a textbook. Never did he study or concentrate upon the lectures of Europe's most eminent and distinguished scholarly instructors. And yet, his grades, his papers, his recitations were perfect in every degree. And then one day, Stefan Hamlin told me his secret poured forth his very soul at my feet and threw himself at my mercy. You think I'm odd. You call me different. You despised me the first day you met me because I didn't walk, didn't talk, despite my apparent ability to do so. Men everywhere have always shunned me. All my life I've been whispered about behind my back. All my life I've been lonely. My heart has been heavy with loneliness that no human words, no, not even those words I can summon may ever describe. I'm different, yes. To me, complete universal knowledge has always been more an instinct than an, an acquirement. All my days I have had nothing, nothing to acquire, nothing for which to exist, nothing save one thing. Ever since the day I was born, I have been looking for my brother. Your brother, Stefan? 
I thought you were the only child. I am. I don't mean my worldly flesh and blood, brother. No, I mean something far greater than that, Julius. I've spent my life searching for my spiritual brother, as it were. And yet, not altogether spiritual, no. You see, Julius, I am not of this race. It startles you, doesn't it? But it's nonetheless true. I was born 10,000 years too soon. Yes, at least 10,000 years. Something went wrong in the plan of things. Some mix-up in regeneration. Some grave calamity in the routine of creation. For my kind, my race, it's not to be born into this world until thousands upon thousands of years hence. How I came to be, I have no answer. But I am, and so I shall be, till my span is ebbed. I have the complete knowledge of your universe because, according to the plan of things to come, all that is knowledge here with you now will be merely common inborn knowledge for the race in the future that is to be mine. That's why I need no books. That's why I'm different. Because the things you know are as mere nothingness to me. And because the things I know are 10,000 years beyond your understanding. I've brought you here, Dr. Julius Simek, to announce to you the end of your civilization. I found the means of destroying it at one fell swoop. The sooner to bring about the appearance of my race, the better for the world. I've sought the world over for my brother. The one like me. One of my race. But now I'm certain there is none. That I am alone. I can foretell everything. I know everything that is to come. All save one thing. I do not know my destiny, my own individual end. I do not have the power to foresee that. Or to foresee who will bring it about. And then, he outlined to me the most devastating, the most terrible, the most death-rendering plan of all history. For the dispellation of the present race from the face of the earth. Bitterly, he outlined it. Poison dripping viciously from his every word. It was so simply done, so quickly, so painlessly, that its very program rendered unto me a nausea that I found almost impossible to overcome. I argued with him, pleaded, begged, I reasoned, bullied, threatened. All to no avail. He had made his plans. He was determined that they should be carried out. If he were to be destroyed too, he did not know. He could not foresee his destruction, nor his destroyer. His destroyer. No. He didn't know what his own end upon earth was to be. He could foresee all future things, save his own destruction, save his own destroyer. His destroyer. Someone had to destroy him. Someone had to. Someone. He was still babbling about that wicked, wretched plan of his, outlining it like a madman. I looked about me, cautiously at first. Then, desperately, when I realized he had forgotten my existence, I groped for a solution to this terrible, impending calamity. And just then, Stefan opened a desk drawer, withdrew a small compass. I caught a glimpse of a small gun in that drawer. I could see, even at that distance, that the gun was loaded. He was still talking about his plan, still bewailing the fact that he alone on this earth had the power possessed within him, still decrying the fact that he had searched the world over for his brother. Not his flesh and blood brother. But a brother of his kind, his race, he knew that were there another soul of his kind alive on earth, that soul could foretell the end, the destruction of Stephen Hamlin. Suddenly he arose from his chair. He ordered me to come with him. He was about to work his havoc upon an unsuspecting world. And then desperately I acted. Quickly I yanked open the drawer of his study desk, took out the gun. I leveled it at his head. He stood terrified a moment. And then... Then there was a... pleading in his eyes. A pleading. Not for his life, but a pleading to spare him the damage a ripping bullet would do to his masterly brain. And in that instant... In that final desperate second before he lunged at me in an effort to save his life, there was recognition. The flash of an age-old suspicion at last fulfilled. And as I lowered my gun to a level with his heart, 
I knew that the pain within my heart at that moment would never be removed. Like lightning, he made for me, speeding across the room, charging at me. I tried to stop him, tried to warn him, shouted at him. Keep back. No, keep back, Stephen. Keep back. He fell at my feet, kneeling, almost in supplication. He had not foreseen his end. He did not know. He could not know. For I was his brother. Tonight's original tale of dark fantasy, I Am Your Brother, written and directed by Scott Bishop and originating in the studios of WKY. Ben Morris was heard as Dr. Julius Semek, Blois Wright was Stephen Hamblin, and Muir Height played Dr. Carl Miller. Next Friday at this same time, the 30th original dark fantasy adventure, The Sleeping Death, created for you by Scott Bishop. Tom Paxton speaking, dark fantasy comes to you each Friday night from Oklahoma City, this is the National Broadcasting Company. Stay tuned for Father Knows Best on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Robert Young to star in Father Knows Best in the show entitled Golf Challenge. This show, by the way, was first aired in 1950. Mother, is Maxwell House really the only coffee in the world? Well, your father says so, and your father knows best. <laughs> Yes, it's Father Knows Best, transcribed in Hollywood, starring Robert Young as father. A half-hour visit with your neighbors, the Andersons, brought to you by America's favorite coffee, Maxwell House. The coffee that's always good to the last drop. There was once an ancient Greek, a lad named Zenobius, who probably didn't know a putter from the front end of a buggy whip. Yet in the year 154 A.D., he wrote, contests allow no excuses, no more do friendships. And if that doesn't describe the average golf tournament, it comes mighty, mighty close. Today in Springfield, in the white frame house on Maple Street, we find that things haven't changed a great deal in the last 18 centuries. Customs and costumes may have altered slightly, but people go on forever. Like this. But, Mother, the whole play depends on it. I told them I'd buy a new dress. I'm sorry, Betty. You had no right to tell them anything like that. Mother, you don't understand. I'm a star. I'm Camille. And how can Camille die in an old dress? You just have to manage, dear. The greatest opportunity of my life. Everyone will be watching me, and I have to die in that old rag. I'll just die. I'm sure you will, dear. Mother, you're not even listening. Why can't I just ask him? Betty, I know it means a great deal to you, but try to think of the rest of us. Your father's having so much trouble with his car. Now, if you ask him for a new dress... <gasps> oh, dear, I told them to be careful. Bud, what are you doing out there? I wasn't doing anything, Mom. Oh, he was too. Kathy, you and Bud come in here this very minute. Mother, couldn't we explain to him that it's really sort of an investment? Betty, please, not now. Bud, what was that noise? Noise? <laughs> you mean just now? Yes, just now. You mean the noise that sounded like a window breaking? Yes. A window broke. <laughs> Bud, which window and who broke it? It was the garage window. And a rock broke it. 
Mother, they've ruined everything. Now I'll never get the dress. What did we do? You broke a window, that's what. And Father will be all upset. I didn't break a window. Kathy broke it. I did not. You broke it just as much as I did. I didn't even touch the rock. Well, it was your golf club, and you told me what to do. I did not. You certainly did. I certainly didn't. Children, please. Will Father be home soon? He's home now. He is? Oh, dear. Kathy, don't you say anything to your father until I've had a chance to say... Yes, Jim? I'm home. Uh, We're in the kitchen, dear. (laughs) He would have let me have the dress. I know he would. Now he never will, and it's all your fault. Mine? Yes, yours. You and that... that junior grade Frankenstein. (laughs) Mother! Betty, please, I will not have you... Well... Oh, hello, dear. What's going on in here? Hello, Father. Hi, Dad. Hello, Daddy. How do you do, Clara, Lou, and Em? <laughs> Hi, honey. Hello, dear. As I said before, why the kitchen convention? Uh, you're home a little early, aren't you, dear? Yes, we, uh, we finished a little earlier than usual this afternoon. What's the matter with the kids? They look as though they... Uh, dinner won't be ready for half an hour, Jim. I hope you don't mind. No, I don't mind. I said... So many things came up this afternoon. I've been busy trying to get them straightened out. Margaret. Yes, dear? What happened? Uh, What do you mean, dear? I'm being steered away from something. What is it? Daddy. I should have known. (laughs) All right, Kathy. Whose window is it this time? Ours, the one in the garage. Well, that's a novelty. I guess it was my fault, too, Dad. I was showing her how to play golf. I won't ever do it again, Daddy. Well, you don't have to look so solemn about it. You certainly didn't do it on purpose. Did you? Oh, oh, no, Daddy. (laughs) There's nothing so terrible about breaking a window. Just an accident, that's all. Jim. Yes, Margaret? Do you feel all right, dear? (laughs) Sure I feel all right. I feel fine. Why? I was just wondering... Father. Betty. (laughs) Please. But, Mother, as long as he feels that way... Jim, I told her quite definitely that it was out of the question. What is? Father, I have to have a new dress. It's for the third act of Camille, and I told the dramatic coach I would, and it's only $17, and it's just beautiful for when she dies. Who, the coach? (laughs) Father. Camille. Betty, I told you just a few minutes ago... Just a second, Margaret. If the dress is that important and uh, Betty promised, well, there's no reason why she can't get it. Father! Holy cow. After all, it's only $17. What's that? Wait till I tell Janie Liggett. Jim, are you sure you feel all right? Never felt better in my life. Margaret... Do you know what I did this afternoon? No, dear, but if you want to lie down... I beat Jim Hathaway. That's fine, dear, if you want to lie down for a while before dinner. Oh, it's pale green, Father, and it's just like pistachio whipped cream. Fine. Margaret, you don't understand. Jim Hathaway was a three-to-one favorite. He was even money to win the whole tournament. And I beat him. Don't you see what that means? I'm in the semifinals. Daddy! Holy cow, Dad, no kidding. Fifth! years and I finally made it. <laughs> the semifinals. With pale makeup and a soft spotlight. Oh, Father, I'm the happiest girl in the world. Yes, sir, 15 years. And that isn't the best part. Do you know who I have to play? Ed Davis. And if I can't beat him, I'll hang up my shoes. Why? What? Why will you hang up your shoes? That's uh, just an expression, Kathy. It means I'll give up. Wearing shoes? (laughs) No, Kathy, playing golf. Gosh, Dad, you might even win the cup, mightn't you? I certainly might. (laughs) Bud, you should have seen the putts I dropped today. 18 feet, 20 feet, I was the hottest thing on the golf course. If I can just keep it up for two more rounds... Jim, I don't like to interrupt... But if we're ever going to have dinner... Is it all right if I call Janie, Mother? Yes, dear. Come on, Kathy. Let's go out in the backyard. 
I'll show you and Bud how golf should really be played. Oh, boy. I get shown first. Jim, be sure you don't wander off somewhere. We'll be right here, Margaret. I'll call you when dinner's ready. That'll be fine, honey. Say, Dad, we've been using that old five iron you gave me. Oh, wait a second, Bud. Say, Ed. Jim, I was just coming over to see you. Ed, did you hear what I did to Jim Hathaway? It was murder. I know. They called me for the club. Jim, I've got a terrific favor to ask of you. Okay. What's the matter with you? Oh, I've got a cold. The worst cold I've ever had my whole life. Hello, Mr. Davis. Hello, Kathy. Bud. Hi. Don't get too close to me. I'm a walking gerb. (laughs) Boy, you certainly picked up a pip, Jim. Would it be all right with you if we postponed our batch until Sunday? Gosh, I don't know, Ed. That's when the finals are supposed to be played. I know, Jim, but I, I'm pretty sure I could lick this cold by Sunday. Then I could play the semifinals in the morning and the finals in the afternoon. <laughs> oh, you can, can you? What happened to me? Oh, Jim, let's face it. If I can't lick you, I'll hang up my shoes. <laughs> Wait a minute. I wouldn't ask you, Jim, but this is a big thing in my life. I've been trying to reach the finals for ten years. I've been trying for fifteen. Oh, Jim, let's not be ridiculous. You don't stand a chance and you do it. Oh, I don't, don't I? Oh, why, I could spot you six strokes aside and still beat you, but with this cold... Well, maybe I won't win. But at least I don't go around trying to build up an alibi. Meaning what? Meaning I could beat you with or without a cold, and you know it. Jib, we've been friends for a long time. That's got nothing to do with it. Golf is golf. And if you can't play tomorrow, you'll forfeit the match. Oh, that's fine. That's fine after all the things I've done for you. And you're taking the wrong attitude about this whole thing. I want to beat you fair and square. Yeah. But how can I if you let a little thing like a cold get you down? A little thing? I'm so weak I could hardly see. Sure. Sure, because you aren't trying to fight it. Jib, when you get into the house, fix yourself a hot lemonade, take two aspirins, and then concentrate. Jib, say to yourself, I haven't got a cold. Never had a cold. I'm too strong and healthy to get a cold. Believe me, it's all in your mind. (coughs) God bless you. Thank you. Remember that guy, Kuwe? Every day, in every way, I'm getting better and better and better. Yeah, whatever happened to him anyway. He died. <laughs> but, Ed, it works. I've tried it. You can talk yourself out of practically anything. Yeah, you sure can. Well, if that's the way you want it, Jim. Ed, I'm trying to help you. Okay, I'll be there at the party if they have to carry me on a stretcher. And don't forget the hot lemonade and aspirin. That'll help, too. Thanks, Jim. Every day and every way, you've been a great help. See you tomorrow. Dad, we aren't going to have much time. Oh, sure we are. Where's the ball? We don't have a ball. That's why we had to use rocks. What happened to that practice ball I gave you? You know, the uh, cotton one. It's over near the garage. Well, get it. We can't. It's stuck in back of a big log. That's right, Dad. You can't reach it unless we get the log out of the way. I've never seen a more helpless pair of kids in my life. Is uh, this it? Uh-huh. Over there, in back. But uh, I'll lift the log and you reach in for the ball. Okay, Dad. Are you ready? You bet. One, two, three. Mm. Heavy, isn't it, Daddy? Well, my hands must have slipped. Uh, let's try it again, bud. Ready? Right. One, two, three. Oh! <laughs> What's the oh, matter, Dad? I don't know. Something snapped, and I... Oh. Gosh. I... I can't straighten up. Daddy! Maybe your suspenders got stuck. <laughs> but... I... I don't wear suspenders. Oh, that's right. I forgot. Fine son you turned out to be. I'm in mortal agony and you have to make jokes. I wasn't making any jokes, Dad. Daddy! Oh, my back. What is it, Kathy? I know how you can fix it. You do, huh? Sure. All you have to say is, every day in every way, I'm standing upper and upper and upper. Kathy, do you know what'll happen if I take my belt off? Uh Uh-huh, your pants will fall down. (laughs) 
sands of time run slowly in the white frame house on Maple Street. An hour has passed, but not Jim Anderson's affliction. Surrounded by his solicitous family, Father waits the arrival of Dr. Simmons. And sympathy flows in a steady stream through the Anderson living room, like this. Jim, I've told you repeatedly, you're not a child. You can't do things like that. Like what? All I did was try to lift the... Oh, oh. It hurts, huh, Dad? Of course not. I just like to groan, that's all. <laughs> Betty, what's the matter with you? Oh, nothing, Father. Then why are you staring at me? Well, it's for Camille, really. I'm doing research. What are you talking about? Oh, the play. I have to die in the third act, and you're making the most wonderful faces. <laughs> oh, that's fine. That's just great. I have a broken back, and my daughter uses it for research. You know, this is the most cold-blooded family I've ever known. But, Father... Margaret, call the doctor again. Tell him it's an emergency. I did, Jim, and they said he'd be here as soon as possible. A fine doctor he turned out to be. Anytime you need him, he's out. Operating on people, delivering babies. He's never around when you need him for anything important. Uh, Father, about the dress... Betty, this is hardly the time. But, Mother, I have to go to the rehearsal. Well, go ahead. Nobody's stopping you. I can't go unless you give me the $17. Then stay home. Father! Doesn't it mean anything to you that I'm practically dying? I lie here doubled up like a pretzel? Hey, you know, I didn't have any dinner. <laughs> but how can you think of food at a time like this? Well, I'm a growing boy. <laughs> we'll all have our dinner in just a little while, bud. Mommy, I got it as hot as I could. Oh, well, thank you, dear. You're welcome. People go around breaking windows, hitting golf balls and back of logs. Jim, let me put the hot water bottle on your back. I don't want it on my back. It hurts enough the way it is. <laughs> Gosh, Dad, how are you going to play golf tomorrow? Golf? I'll be lucky if I'm still alive. Oh, no. What is it, Jim? Ed Davis. What am I going to tell him? Well, why don't you just tell him? Margaret, I can't. He'd never believe that I hurt my back. Not after the argument we had. Daddy told him about Mr. Pooey. Who? <laughs> every day in every way. Kathy, go to bed. <laughs> I haven't had my dinner. Then behave yourself and be quiet. Yes, Daddy. Man tries to do the right thing, the honorable thing, and what happens? Nobody believes that he... Uh, Bud... Yes, Dan? Give me a hand. I, uh, I want to get up. Okay. Jim, do you think it's wise... I've got to call Ed Davis, Margaret. I, uh, I just thought of something. Well, can't we call him for you? No, I've got to do it myself. Jim, please be careful. I'm being careful. You don't see me leaping into the air, do you? Oh. Grab his other arm, Betty. Father, it's only $17. I, uh... When I was a boy, people were considerate. They were thoughtful and kind. Paul, will you, Betty? When people were dying, they at least showed them the proper respect. They didn't follow them down to the grave, hounding them for $17. <laughs> there you are, Dad. How do you feel? Never mind how I feel. Just uh, help me over to the phone. Father, while you're standing up... Betty... Yes, Father? Go away But, Father... I said go away Bud and I can manage alone Jumping creepers after I told everybody I was gonna get... She wouldn't care if somebody dropped a bomb on my head Just as long as she got that idiotic dress You want me to dial the Davises for you, Dad? Thank you very much, Bud You've been a great help Oh, that's okay, Dad Say, Dad, you won't be able to use the car tonight, and I just thought... Well, uh, stop thinking. You had the car last night, and that's enough. Here, let me have it. Holy cow. Hello? Oh, hello, Ed. This is Jim Anderson. Oh, hello, Jim. Say, I owe you an apology. Oh, that's all right, Ed. You know, 
I've been thinking things over, and uh, I don't see any reason why we can't postpone our match until Sunday. What for? Well, uh, I want you to be at your best, Ed, and that'll give you a chance to get over your cold. What cold? Jim, I, I don't know how to thank you. I did just what you said, and I feel like a new man. <laughs> you, uh, what? Oh, I've still got a couple of sniffles, but I feel great. You uh, do, huh? You certainly knew what you were talking about. Every day and every way. Hey, that's a great system. It is, huh? Yes, sir. You'll have to play some pretty sharp golf to beat me tomorrow. Say, wouldn't you like to go out to the driving range and hit a few? Uh, no thanks, Ed. I, uh, I'll just uh, take it easy tonight. Okay, pal. See you in the morning. Yes, I'll, uh, <laughs> see you in the morning. <laughs> Every day and every way, I ought to have my brains examined. What did Mr. Davis say, Dad? He feels fine, bud, just fine. Uh, let's uh, go back to the couch. Okay. Jim, I don't understand what this is all about. If you can't play golf, why don't you tell him? Margaret, there are certain things that women just don't... Uh, let me down easy, bud. Okay, Dad. Oh! Father! Betty! You and Kathy go into the kitchen and fix your dinners. But, Mother... You've waited long enough. Now go ahead. How about me, Mom? I'm starved. You can wait a little longer, Bud. The doctor may need you. Now, Jim, will you please explain all this foolishness about Ed Davis? There's nothing foolish about it, Margaret. He said he had a cold, and I said he was trying to set up an alibi. Now, if I say I hurt my back... Two grown men acting like a couple of silly schoolboys... What's so silly about schoolboys? <laughs> I'm sorry, bud. Margaret, unless I can convince Ed Davis... But you don't have to convince him. Dr. Simmons will certainly tell him. Say, that's right. If the doc tells me I can't play, then uh, I can't play, can I? Well, it's about time. Bud, let the doctor in like a good boy. Then can I have my dinner? We'll see, dear. Holy cow. Doctors, always rushing around, never get any place, make a big production out of everything. If I ran my business the way they do, I'd be looking for a job in a week. Jim, please don't stop. Well, hello, Margaret. What's all the fuss about? Oh, hello, doctor. It's about time you showed up, you old quack. So I'm finally going to get my hooks into you. <laughs> Fine doctor. Listen to that bedside manner. He's going to get his hooks into me. Oh. Doctor, will you need Bud for anything? Oh, I don't think so. All right, Bud, go in and have your dinner, dear. Well, good for me. You know, Margaret, I was talking to Mrs. Swain about you the other day. Really? That's right. She was telling me about that hospital service you were trying to organize last year. It's a wonderful idea. Oh, well, thank you. Doc, if you have any free time next week, Margaret, why don't you drop into my office? I may be able to help you. Oh, that would be wonderful. Doc, what's the matter with you? <laughs> Remember me? I'm the emergency. Well, I know. What's wrong with you? Oh, nothing much. Just a broken back, that's all. <laughs> yes, you, you look just like a broken back. <laughs> he says it's quite painful, Doctor. Well, let's take a look at it. Turn around. I can't turn around. Oh, stop acting like a jackass. Turn around. <laughs> Calls himself a doctor. If I didn't like his sister, I wouldn't even let him in the house. Hmm. <laughs> Is that where it hurts? <laughs> you know darn well that's where it hurts. Well, hold still for a second. Uh, well, what are you going to do? Never mind what I'm going to do. Just hold still. Ow! <laughs> okay, now go to bed and put some heat on it. <sighs> Was it anything serious, Doctor? No, of course not. You know, Margaret, we've needed a volunteer service at the hospital for years. <laughs> and if you can just get it started... Hey, Doc, I'm talking to Margaret. Well, I hate to interrupt anything so vital, but uh, what else do I do? I just told you, go to bed and put heat on your back. Is that all? Well, I can send a nurse around to hold your hand, if that's what you want. <laughs> you mean that... Uh, it wasn't serious? It was a simple dislocation. And if you'd remember that you were 40 instead of four, it wouldn't happen. Gosh, 
I can stand out. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Only 40 years old, and he can stand up. Be careful. Oh, he's all right, Margaret. In the morning, you'll never know there's anything wrong with it. Is that so? I'm as weak as a cat, and you know it. Well, it may take a few days, but you'll be all right. In the meantime, uh, I'd better stay in bed, huh? No, I wouldn't do that, Jim. If you let that spine stiffen up, you're liable to run into trouble. I'd prescribe some light exercise. Of course, you won't do so well, but uh, why don't you go over to the club in the morning and play a little golf? It's been such welcome news to see lower prices on Maxwell House coffee in the stores. And now that news is even better. These days, grocers everywhere are featuring Maxwell House at lower prices still. Now you folks who always drink Maxwell House can enjoy it at the lowest prices in months. And you folks who haven't been getting that wonderful good-to-the-last-drop flavor, now's the time to bring home a familiar blue Maxwell House tin. See how much more pleasure you find in a cup of coffee when it holds the world's most famous flavor. Flavor so rich and mellow. Flavor you can count on. Because we'll never compromise on the quality of a single pound. For wonderfully good coffee. For today's coffee buy. Look for Maxwell House. Featured these days at still lower prices. The lowest prices in months. It's always good to the last drop. It's morning now, and in the white frame house on Maple Street, there's a heavy blanket of gloom in the master bedroom. This is one morning when the master feels anything but masterful. Like this. Dr. Simmons probably took his training in a school for feeble-minded veterinarians. Jim, I think you're being very foolish about this whole thing. You can't even put on your sweater alone, and how can you play golf? I don't know, but I'm going to try. Nobody's going to say I gave up without a fight. Jim. He'd only told me to stay in bed for a few days. Just one day. I could have asked the rules committee for a postponement. That's all I need. I'll be fine tomorrow. Jim Anderson, if you don't call Ed Davis this very instant... Wait a minute. If you'll just explain Margaret, to him... Margaret, listen. What? Oh, honey. Have you ever heard anything more beautiful in all your life? Jim, what is it? It's raining! <laughs> again next week when we'll be back with Father Knows Best, starring Robert Young as Jim Anderson, with Roy Bargey and the Maxwell House Orchestra, and yours truly, Bill Foreman. Don't forget, membership cards for the Robert Young Good Drivers Club are waiting for you at your local NBC station. Get a man-to-man -man or dad-to-daughter pledge and sign up today. Be a good driver. Get your membership card in the Robert Young Good Drivers Club today. Now, until next Thursday, good night and good luck from the makers of Maxwell House, America's favorite brand of coffee. Always good to the last drop. Father Knows Best was transcribed in Hollywood and written by Ed James. Now stay tuned in for the Screen Guild Theater, which follows immediately over most of these stations. Stay tuned for Mad for Music, starring Joan Evans on NBC. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Dimension X, followed by the Bickersons. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. 
Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.